This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. October 17th, 2018, uh, that will be the date that recreational marijuana will become legal in Canada. Uh, to talk more about all of this, well, before we get to the guests, let's bring in what the Prime Minister had to say in regard to extending the date uh, to October 17th and then uh, prob- uh, then the uh, opportunity to, uh, I-, I guess, clear those that have been previously charged. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say. Today, I'm also pleased to announce that the new recreational cannabis regime will officially come into force on October 17th of this year. We heard from provinces and territories who told us they needed more time to transition to this new framework. So our government will continue to work in full partnership with them to ensure the smooth and orderly implementation of this new law across Canada. Uh, There's uh, no no point looking at uh, pardons while the uh, old law uh, is on the books. Uh, we've said we will look at next steps once the new coming into force happens. Uh, but uh, b- between now and then, um, the current uh, regime uh, stays. All right, let's bring in Ivan Ross, Brana, cannabis expert at Hill uh, Knowlton Strategies, and is with us now. Ivan, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. Are you surprised by the delay? I was a little bit. I was betting uh, within our office that it would be, you know, the first week of September. But I am actually glad that the delay is a little bit longer. I think it gives all of us, whether it's the provinces and territories, uh, stakeholders and industry, to really start to prepare for this and look at the challenges and opportunities. Uh, Could it also be just the optics of the fact that this was delayed, which would put it into the fall, and that's the same time kids are going back to school, so September just wouldn't be a good idea? Well, yeah, I, hey, I think that's a, that's a good analysis, too. I also think, you know, part of it was, um, you know, today's the first day of summer, as you pointed out on your show, so I think uh, maybe, you know, festival season has to get done and completed, and uh, we can start to roll this out. But I, I think industry, though, and also Health Canada itself needs this time to properly roll this out and give the guidance to everybody, whether it is uh, advocacy groups and industry who are preparing for it, uh, not only from producing the product, but also uh, provinces on the distribution regime, because we still have a lot of work there to do, uh, can use the extra time. Why are some provinces more ready than others? Well, I, I guess it just depends on how uh, nimble they are, right, and how they're embracing it. You know, so it all depends on sort of what their model is. And so if you're building up a complete government-run uh, program, it takes a little bit longer uh, I would imagine other provinces at West are looking at sort of uh, doing the private side, so maybe that goes a little bit quicker. Uh, but I think they're all sort of working towards their strengths, and, you know, this is not something uh, that's easy to figure out. Uh, as, you know, it's been all over the news, it's 95 years since we're ending this prohibition, so no matter what, I think it's going to take some time to get right. Are you surprised it has pretty much mirrored the differences in alcohol distribution across the province? If you look at the way we distribute alcohol uh, from coast to coast, it's vastly different depending on which province you are, you are in. Uh, surprised it's pretty much the same way with this? Uh, no, I, and I think that's what we were advising way back in the beginning. And to, to my mind, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because you might as well build off as to what you know mm. uh, with a province where you feel familiar with it. And so, again, this is a substance that, you know, it does have medical purposes. That's the one difference. Uh, I know you could argue that alcohol does too at certain times. Um, mm. But, uh, I mean, I think it's a, it's a good model to build off of. What I do hope, though, for the future is that we learn more and we can adapt. So if we need to change it, 
that you know governments are open to that. Uh, where do you, where is Ontario in uh, where is Ontario on this in the grand scheme of things from coast to coast? Well, I mean, uh, you know, largest province, right? We've got 14 million people there. Uh, we have a brand new premier uh, who's going to be sworn in on the 29th. So I think they have a lot of work to do. Uh, we do have the the bill. The legislation was passed by the previous government, so they're going to have to take a look at that. Uh, so I think we're in that transition. Uh, this this uh, premier elect has certainly talked about possibly uh, private enterprise, but I know he's going to have to get briefed not only by his caucus and where they sit, but also by the public servants who are putting this out together. So I think we're in a transition period there. And again, I think that's where the delay will come in handy and hopefully help us in Ontario uh, to reflect what people are looking for and what this government may want to do with it. Uh, How does it complicate the fact that uh, we are changing governments uh, with this for Ontario? Because, uh, you know, it seems that uh, many would say Ontario is a bit behind on it. That being said, it probably wasn't a priority for the outgoing win government. Uh, Perhaps, uh, obviously, once they knew the direction the election was coming in. Uh, That being said, uh, uh, what can we learn from other provinces? What can we learn from other jurisdictions in the states that are already doing this? Well, I, I think, you know, what you can, we can learn, especially in Ontario, is, you know, there's a great opportunity as to what works and what doesn't. But I, I would argue also, you know, from other provinces, from other jurisdictions in the states, you know, even if you think Ontario is a little bit behind the curve, everybody is still learning. And there is no solid answer, I would argue, that this is the absolute right way to go. Because I think there has to be this distinction that we're a little bit different, obviously, than the U.S., because it, it looks to have mended into sort of the, the, the recreational market. They're a little bit more state by state, even though a lot of states have medical. But we're Canada. We have a national regime, and I think that the medical side is very key for people to remember. On the recreational side, I think we're all sort of at the same place, figuring out day by day and seeing what the challenges are. And what is the biggest challenge now for the provinces, uh, specifically Ontario, now that the date has been announced? Well, it'll be, you know, to have those stores up and running, whatever model is out there. And I think we'll have to be patient, too, about understanding access. I think that'll be the biggest uh, sort of hurdle that we'll have to get over through those initial days. Because, again, if we look to the U.S., uh, as to your point earlier, for some sort of guidance, you know, we did see a bit of a, a shortage there, people lining up. Uh, it does work its way out through the system, I think we'll do. So, I, I mean, I think the biggest thing is patience, really, that we're going to have to understand a little bit. But I think it will come down to access. And I think it's this understanding, too, that the illegal market is not simply going to disappear overnight. And this is something that we're going to have to keep on building and learning, not only on a monthly, but on a yearly basis. Uh, we were talking about this the other day, and uh, an email came in from a listener and, and was joking about 40 stores in Ontario saying there's 40 outlets in Hamilton right now. What happens to all of that? Well, I think now the nice thing is, you know, I've always maintained it's never there's it's a clear uh, distinction. There's never been this gray market that some people talk about. It's still illegal, but I think with the legalization coming in, uh, recreational coming in, it gives our police forces now the clear uh, guidance that these places will have to disappear, right? And so it, it's the same kind of value proposition that if I were to go open up an alcohol store, I would be shut yeah. down and charged pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. And so now 
I, I believe that it, this is very clear, and that guidance is there, and they will have the jurisprudence to ensure that when they do shut these places down, they remain closed. Will that uh, will that give uh, the new government more incentive to look at some sort of privatization? Do you think the fact that the cat's already out of the bag, so to speak? Well, I you know I I think that's actually an excellent question, and you know my advice would be to say, you know. How do we really make sure we're effective in getting rid of the black market, right, the illegal market? And so I think you have to look at a lot of options. And I know, you know, that the civil service in Ontario has done an excellent job in trying to plan out a lot of different scenarios. You've got the Ontario Cannabis Store framework being set up. They're working extremely hard to meet with communities and so forth uh, to get that out there. But I think you have to have these further discussions because... No matter what kind of solution that we come up with on October 17th, again, I go back to the idea that governments will have to be flexible because we will be all learning at the same time because we've never done anything like this. Uh, this is really brand new in my generation, and I guess the last time, the last comparable is in the 30s when we ended prohibition on alcohol. Hmm, good point. So what will, I remember talking to experts about when uh, beer and uh, wine were, were available in grocery stores. There was such a big stink and such a hassle to get that finally implemented. And, and I remember in the week or so leading up to it, asking an expert, what's life going to be like after this? Is every day going to be New Year's Eve? Like, what's the, what's the issue here? And, and I guess I asked the same question to you in regard to cannabis. What's life going to be yeah. like a year after that? Or the, or the, <laughs> the weekend? I get maybe the weekend of isn't a good analogy. But what about a year later? Well, I, I, you know, I think that's a great question again. I, you know, if we look at the states that have legalized it, you know, life has gone on. It hasn't changed much. You, you've seen maybe a bit of shift from alcohol sales in certain areas, certain segments. But that still remains strong. So I think it's just recognizing something that is already happening. And so a year from now, uh, you know, there'll be still a view on is cannabis good, bad, or ugly, or, or however people tend to approach it. Uh, so I think life is simply going to go on. The only difference that I would maybe uh, counsel a little bit on this is when it comes to cannabis, though, the other thing is that there's a huge medical upside to this, and there's lots of research being done to hopefully outline the proper risks and benefits. So that might change the dynamic a little bit. But for the weekend and, and for people who you know consume it already, I don't think much is going to change. And patterns may shift, but uh, to your point, is it a year? Is it five years? Is it a decade? That'll be uh, that'll have to be seen. How do you think it's going to alter, or will it alter, or change alcohol distribution? Because I, I know sitting in the weeds, they're sitting there. No pun intended. They're sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> that was, wow. Uh, they're sitting there thinking, "Wow, we're getting nailed with taxes." Uh, left, right, and center. Uh, we're we're operating within uh, a pretty much monopoly system with the LCBO. Uh, now it seems uh, instead of having to try to fight that battle with privatization and, and more privatization into uh, alcohol distribution, the government has given them the bonbon of of cannabis. So again, where is this where is this discussion about distribution going to be later down the road when the alcohol dis, uh, distribution uh, or distributors are saying, "Geez, we're getting taxed up the yin yang, and we're limited in where we can sell it." And can they keep? Can the unions and the LCBO and, and whatever the new cannabis store is? Can they keep a lid on this thing? Well, I, you know, again, I that I think is something that 
government policymakers, elected officials, us as citizens will have to contemplate. You know, the difference, though, I would point out is with this industry uh, and the alcohol industry is regulated uh, heavily, too. It's a different type of regulation, though, on cannabis, right? And it's, a, it's you know, Health Canada is very cognizant about making sure the product is safe for consumption. Licensed producers have to really go through a strict uh, process in order to get their license. So, you know, when it comes to distribution, it's in everybody's interest that product is out there uh, and that it's safe and uh, there for people to consume, whether it's from a recreational point of view or from a medical. On the distribution side, like alcohol, yeah, I think there's going to have to be a discussion about how it's all controlled, right? And I think what we have to do, though, is we, we need more time, more evidence, more data to really have a better discussion on this. Uh, 40 stores by October 17th. Is this a train wreck waiting to happen? What if this launches and everybody just kind of laughs at it? Because it's, well, not, I, it's not prepared, it's, it's yeah. too little, it's like, are you kidding me? Like, how important is it that they launch this on the right foot? Well, I, I, again, I, I would sort of argue that, yes, 40 stores clearly for this province of 14 million is not enough. I'm pretty sure the OCS... Interior Canada store recognize that, as do policymakers. Um, you know, even the provinces that have this kind of privatized system, they they probably will not have enough stores either. I mean, we have 666 or 660 LCBO stores across the, the, the province. So, again, I think that's something that has to adapt. I, I think over time it's going to change. Uh, but we have to start somewhere is what I'm, I think the message that I'm trying to give. Of course, I would have probably liked to have seen more stores starting up. But again, this is, it's not something that can be rushed or uh, done overnight. And so I think, you know, a methodical uh, step-wise approach to it is what we have to follow. And, you know, the expansion plans have to be there because I go back to access. Again, it's all about access and we have to make sure that's there if the illegal market is going to disappear over time. Ivan Ross Brana has been with us, cannabis expert at Hill Knowlton Strategies. Ivan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Well, thanks very much for having me, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Documents show that Trudeau's trip to India that received a ton of criticism cost upwards of $1.5 million dollars. Did we get anything in return to justify the cost? Let's bring in Christo Avali, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctor fellow, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo is with us now. Christo, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we get into uh, the situation in India and so on and so forth, uh, your thoughts on uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's reaction to what is happening south of the border. Obviously, we saw the dust up at the G7 and the issue in regard to tariffs and so on and so forth. Uh, but now uh, it appears, especially with the situation in regard to the border uh, along Mexico and the United States. It appeared for a couple of days world leaders were kind of mum. Now they're speaking up about it. Your thoughts on how the Prime Minister handled all this? I mean, I think, you know, I, I think he could have handled it better. I think the reality is that, you know, this is pretty heinous. And a lot of the arguments are that, well, you know, Canada's words won't mean anything or will endanger the trade relationship. And, and from my perspective, Trudeau, since Trump's election, has been, you know, rather conciliatory towards the president trying to praise him, taking Ivanka to the, basically on chaperoning her to the theater, doing all of those things, and it's gotten us really nowhere. And so, to me, it was very disappointing to have the Prime Minister kind of sit on his hands for, for days while this happened. And, 
you know, the real leadership came from the NDP uh, caucus really calling for, for, for change here. And, and Trudeau, you know, I think bowing to public pressure, bowing to, uh, you know, uh, probably pe- maybe voices within his own party, but primarily to the New Democrats, people like Jenny Kwan, Jagmeet Singh, Tracy Ramsey, Don Davies. These are the people who are leading the charge for human rights in this country. And the prime minister uh, has been on the sidelines. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's good he's starting to make a bit of a move uh, towards acknowledging the, the human rights violations we're seeing. All of that sounds great, Christo, if you've got a person with some common sense at the other end of the phone, but it doesn't appear that that is the case. Does it pay to speak up against someone like this guy? I mean, especially on issues surrounding domestic uh, affairs. Well, you know, we're talking about human rights. Trudeau, you know, a few a few days ago, there was a video circulating of him, you know, saying that he doesn't care if he has awkward conversations with other world leaders about human rights, specifically talking about, you know, GLBTQ rights in some of the developing countries. And I think if the prime minister wants to lecture developing countries about their human rights abuses, then we should, if anything, be more stringent on our allies, you know, wealthy, established countries to uphold those rights because they have no excuse not to. And I think at the end of the day, you know, history will be the judge. Should we be appeasing this? And and in my view, uh, this is something that needs to happen. And as you said, you know, Trump's volatile. But again, Trump, despite the fact that Trudeau's done everything, I think, to try to 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 tiptoe around Trump's attacks on human rights and whatnot, the reality is, is Trump still wants to take NAFTA down. He still wants to stick it to Canada. He's talking about how we're scuffing up our shoes to sneak them into Canada. So I think what else can you do but, you know, stand up for human rights and let the chips fall where they may? So in other words, you don't think the nice guy, uh, nice guy approach is working? I, I, don't, I don't think it is. I mean, you know, there's, there, there's, it's, there's a difference between, you know, being openly antagonistic in trade talks. I think, you know, with that, like, like with any bargaining process, you want to, you know, keep a lot of that behind closed doors. I totally get it. But this is, this is fundamental human rights. And Justin Trudeau has kind of always said, you know, he and his party believe in those human rights. They're the party of the charter. And, you know, the reality is that, you know, certainly the Canadian charter, charter doesn't apply to the United States, but its value should apply uh, to the conduct we have as, as a country that aspires to be a global leader. Do you think because Trump took a swipe uh, and took such a swipe at, at uh, Trudeau after the G7 that he sort of thought twice about it? I mean, maybe that might have made it easier. You know, if if coming out of that things were more conciliatory, maybe that makes it trickier. But but as you noted, it seems like Trump made made you know made a, not enemies, of course, but made you know didn't make any friends among any of the other G six countries, and so it maybe became a little bit easier to take an alternative course. Whereas if you know, say the G seven meeting kind of led to some new talks, there might have been increased worry about rocking the boat if they were on progress to something. Can the other G7 countries uh, weigh in on uh, his domestic immigration policy when theirs may not be that presentable either? I mean, is this opening up uh, a can of worms in which the, you know, they're just going to come flinging back at you? I mean, that's, you know, that's a, that's, a de- that's a decent point. Some of the G7 countries, like Italy, for instance, are dealing with a lot of the brunt of, the, of this. Uh, and dealing with a lot of refugee issues. But the reality is, is that I think a lot of these countries, all the G7 countries, need to realize that, you know, this is a humanitarian crisis, that we've dealt with things like this before on a much bigger scale, and we've come through it better. I mean, World War II, after World War II, there was massive refugee crises all over, all over the world. And, and we came out through that, and, and, and it, you know, it came out through the better to try to deal with it in a humanitarian sense. 
And I think that's the process. And I think it's also a note that, you know, countries like Turkey, you know, a developing country in a sense, has taken, you know, a very large chunk of refugees. And so, you know, I think the Western nations that are orders of magnitude more wealthy and stable could probably do the same. Uh, is is Trudeau gaining popularity because Canadians are supporting him in the wake of all this Trudeau slapping or, or, so, or all this Trump slapping around? I mean, that's hard to say long term. There was a kind of uh, there was a poll recently that indicated that it does seem he is getting a bit of a bump. Uh, you know, he's getting a bit of a bump because this is seen as an attack on Canada. And, and it, it kind of just so happens that attack on Canada was also, in a sense, a personal attack on him. And his integrity, he was called a liar, a backstabber, right. et cetera. Mm. So I think he has seen a bit of a bump from that. It, you know, it is a bit of a, 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 a multi-partisan moment where, you know, you see, you know, uh, Andrew Shear, you see Jason Kenney, you see Doug Ford, you see, you know, Rachel Notley, you see them all kind of stand with him. You know, Tracy Ramsey had the, the motion in Parliament, which basically passed unanimously. And outside of a few outsiders like, like, like Bernier, the reality is that most people support him. So will this be the kind of thing that, that is, makes the difference in 2019? Who knows? But it is a kind of good moment for Trudeau to kind of demonstrate that he can appeal to broadly, broadly the Canadians. Is it enough to make Canadians forget about the India trip, or do they care anymore? You know, I don't know if they care anymore. It's, it's, it, you know, it wasn't a good trip for Trudeau. Obviously, there was a lot of snafus. There was a lot of, you know, there was limited success for the time investment, and, you know, we'll talk about the financial investment as well. But, you know, I don't think it's, it's going to be a major issue. I would say that this issue with Trump is, is obviously a much bigger one, even if it, or it's perceived as a bigger one because of the proximity, because of Trump just, you know, just how he gobbles up media and public attention. I think that's going to be a much bigger factor than the India trip, at least based on what we know now. Uh, and again, you know, over and above the cost of $1.5 million, I mean, this is a prime minister who this is our biggest asset as far as public relations. And most of the time when he goes on these sorts of things, uh, he woos the rest of the world and they all wish that they were living here. So can we give him a pass on one where it kind of blew up in his face? I mean, it's not so much about giving a pass. I mean, I think on the financial cost, I mean, it's a lot of money and certainly a lot of you can point to isolated items and be like, do we really need that? Is that a little bit opulent? But, you know, it's been noted, the Globe and Mail's piece on this issue was careful to note that, you know, Stephen Harper's trips to India and uh, when he was prime minister also cost quite a bit of money as well. Um, and so the reality is that I don't think it's really about the money. I know the opposition, the conservatives are trying to make it about taxpayer waste. I really do feel the bigger issue here is, you know, the, the perceived optics of the trip. Right. And I think that, you know, Trudeau will argue, well, look, we got some trade uh, considerations. We created some jobs for Canadians. We created good relations. But it really was a less than ideal trip for Trudeau. And it really does show to a certain degree the limitation of his more, um, you know, more uh, Instagram, you know, style leadership, which can work and it has worked for him, but, but can be a little tricky in a country like India, which is very complex politically, socially, economically. And maybe he was unprepared. Uh, for that, for those realities. How did the people in India perceive this visit? I mean, that's 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 very interesting. I, I mean, I, I would be difficult for me to speak to that, both because you know I'm not really an expert on India, but also India itself is a, is a very diverse, large country. I guess you know my view is that there was a lot of controversies 
that, you know, carry over, you know, Canada has issues between, you know, uh, Hindu and Sikh populations that have kind of immigrated from India. Yeah. And a lot of those issues played out. There's accusations of terrorism. And I think those things are less than ideal. It's also probably the case that, you know, the current president, you know, Modi from India is maybe more uh, uh, ideologically aligned with a conservative party versus something of a liberal party. And I think that might have created some tensions as well. He might be more seen along the lines of Trump. Uh, and so maybe it's difficult for Trudeau to relate to a government like that. But, you know, it, it, it's very difficult. And I, and I wouldn't feel comfortable, you know, in, uh, you know, speculating too much on how Indians have seen the trip. Was the big issue the guest list screw up and uh, somehow getting somebody who is convicted uh, into a room that they shouldn't have been in? Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that's less than ideal. I mean, obviously, the, can we blame Trudeau directly for that? Odds are probably not. Hmm. I mean, the prime minister can only, only has so many hours in the day. You know, he does have issues with where he has to delegate, he has to trust. And so that probably was a slip-up in his office. But again, as the prime minister, um, it, it is his responsibility. And I'm sure that that, that was less than ideal. It, it, it created a, a shadow over the event. I think that's a bigger deal than the cost line, personally. And I think that that was a big deal because it distracted from some of the reasons he was going to be there. And other factors were, you know, he was there. It was kind of complicated where it, 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 there was the optics, fairly or not, that this was seemed like it was a family vacation for that's, Trudeau in a sense. There was a lot of pictures with his children, which was great. I don't think that's really an issue, but it seems like in combination with a lot of those things, mm. people got the optics. It's like, is this a trade mission or is this a is a vacation? And that, I think that hurt him in the optics. That's exactly what my next question was, Christo. Is this a case of this being viewed? It, it has more of a vibe of a family trip than it does a uh, you know an actual business visit. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, the one of the difficulties. And again, is that fair? I mean, I, I don't know if it is. I mean, I'm sure that you know, the, if you called the PMO and they asked for an agenda of Trudeau's trips, you probably had a lot of formal engagement yeah. and did kind of all of those things. But and I don't think people are upset if they, I don't think people are upset if the world leader takes their their family around with them. I don't think that's no, a I don't think so either. And I think I think the issue is that you know because Trudeau trades so prominently on the on his image on his family's kind of like image as this beautiful family. Um, the reality is that people see those things more than a lot of the, the kind of nitty gritty work that he was probably doing. And the reality is that when the trip goes bad, people can therefore say, well, man, uh, you know, fairly or not, they could say, well, if Trudeau wasn't spending so much time taking Instagram pictures, maybe he could have given that guest list a, a second check. And that's, hmm. I don't think that's necessarily fair, but you could see how people, you know, might you know, connect those dots. Now that the prime minister, uh, getting back to the situation in the U.S., now that the prime minister has made his comments in regard to Trump and, and his his handling of immigration issues in the United States along the Mexican border, uh, is that it for them? Should they now just, okay, I've said my point, zip it? Or is this, is this story going to continue? I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think you're starting to see in the United States there's clearly a backlash to this. Even Trump supporters don't really support this at a, at a high level. You know, Ted Cruz has tried to to put forward a motion in in you know an act in the House of Commons to, or the, the 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 Senate, sorry, uh, to deal with this issue. Um, even you know former First Lady Laura Bush, a Republican First Lady, has called these pro- policies bad. So Trump's kind of walking it back, but now there's a lot of discussions about what his new executive order will actually mean. Is it going to make it better? Might it make it worse? So I think what you'll see from Trudeau, at least for now, is he has said a little bit. He'll probably sit on it. He might still get pressure from the new Democrats specifically to do more around the third safe uh, country agreement, which is basically the policy where 
you know, we have to send back refugee claimants to the United States because we recognize it as a, a safe country for refugees. A lot of people are saying that might not be the case anymore. But if there's continued negative reaction to Trump's new executive order, you might see, you know, the calls for a more intensified response from Canada in that regard. And you've been seeing pressures on the minister responsible as well. So I don't think it's going away, but there might be a bit of a respite uh, once people try to figure out how these new changes will actually shake out. Does this make Canada look at its own immigration system to make sure these sorts of images would never come uh, from anything they're involved with? And, and talk about the impact of these images. Well, you know, I think the reality is that for countries like, like Canada, there, there's a certain global image it wants to portray, a, a country that welcomes people. Again, if you remember the, when, when Trump you know, tried to propose his Muslim ban, Justin Trudeau that night kind of tweeted a general tweet saying we will welcome people. And that angered a lot of people, actually, because he said that, but he wasn't actually changing any policy to say welcome some of the people that Trump was rejecting or what have you. So I think, you know, Trudeau is very conscious about portraying this image of Canada as a place welcoming to immigrants, welcoming to refugees, welcoming to people of, you know, different faiths and religions, etc. But the question is, what will he do? What can he do? to address this on concrete policy matters, and what are some of the consequences? And that's something that we don't know yet, and I don't know if his government has the will to do it. He, he, may, he might feel it's not something he, he supports. It might be something he worries about the political consequences. Does you know, uh, changing our policy highlight some of the treatment of refugees we already have in Canada? Some people have said you know, Canada's not exactly clean on this. Some people have made the connections between the kind of children being separated from their families and some of the crises we have in Indigenous communities where children are disproportionately taken from Indigenous parents. So there's a lot of pitfalls here from Trudeau, and I think that's why he's being a little cautious. The question is, though, is that if, if, if we really do think that the United States is no longer a safe place to return refugees, then we have to do something, and it's going to fall on him and his government to do it. Do you think, uh, talk about the impact, and last question here, talk about the impact of images like this on a political career. Has Trump sidestepped this, or is this going to come back to haunt him? You know, I think this is certainly going to be, people are going to remember this, I think. I, I really do. I mean, he could still win in 2018. The Republicans could still win the Congress and Senate in 2018. I mean, it's looking, it's looking decent for the Democrats, but Trump's popularity, at least uh, before this really broke, had actually been increasing. Um, but this is this is pretty bad. I mean, if you saw the cover of the the Time magazine, you had a picture of a little girl crying, and kind of photoshopped with Trump, kind of looking down at her, mm. kind of like in an emotionless look, and said, you know, welcome to America. This image is certainly going to 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 hurt him. And even if he's walking it back, I think a lot of people are going to remember this and see it as a pretty a pretty sad state of affairs. And it's not just Trump. It's a lot of his uh, a lot of his key advisors, some of the people they have in the media. You know, some of them were making fun of the situation. Some of them were saying the Bible tells us to do this. And it just it's, it's not coming off very good. And I think this could really hurt him. And I think with Justin Trudeau is that there's really a, a chance, a, a fear maybe or concern is that if he doesn't act in some sense here, could this hurt his legacy? Is this something that historians look back at and say, here's where Justin Trudeau had a chance to stand for human rights and he stayed quiet? And that could be a concern as well. Christo Abelis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, HuffingtonPostCanada.com, PR Daily. You can read her stuff there and hear her right here on CHML. Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. As always, Scott. You heard what I said in the preamble. Uh, over and above the issue of, of, of the immigration and how horrifying these images are, did he not know or is he trying to make it sound like he didn't realize this was happening or that it was going to happen as a result of this zero tolerance policy? Here's what I think. I think that Trump knows his base has short memories and they listen to things in sound bites. So they hear it, they believe it, and then they move on. So if you looked at the narrative trajectory once this first started, you know, we all thought this is horrible. How can this be happening? And then it would cut to interviews that they would do locally with his base. Could be a guy driving a truck through, I don't know, some country road. And he would say, well, this needs to stop happening. We need to stop letting people in. If this is what we need to do, then that's what we need to do it. And and it, it was kind of like a misuse of a lot of words and false facts just to get his point across because he knows that nobody is going to go beneath the surface except for people who really care. So, for example, first he says this is up to the Democrats. They need to change it. It's all their fault. Well, but wait, stop right there. Stop right there, Alyssa. So do does that base not understand that this man for the first, at least for the first part of his presidency, has a majority. So it, it shouldn't matter what the Dems say, because all of his parties behind him is going to ram it through anyway. Well, so, I hate to say like, it, that's like, like a bridge too far in thinking for some people. Oh, it can't be if they're casting a ballot. I mean, I'm come on. You. We all I'm know. I mean, that's like us saying, that's like, that's like Doug Ford blaming Andrea Horvath for something that's happening in Ontario. Okay, well, wait, that will happen. But (laughs) um, let me give you another example. This was presented as a law, and this is why we're doing it, because it's law. Well, no, it wasn't. It was a, it is still a policy. And everybody said it was under the Obama administration. No, Obama and the Bush second, or Bush, what what would it be, 44, both did not want to separate children from their families during this process. So, first of all, the, the limitation around the definition of what is a policy and what is a law. Even though many people knew it was a policy, they made it sound like it was a law, and this is what we're going to happen, and this is what we need to do. Uh, this is what we need to, to make it make it so. Even the director of Homeland Security, even she would say, "Well, you know, this is a policy." And even though they kept saying policy. Nobody really understood that policy and law are, are, are mutually exclusive. They're well, not and it's the, it's, the difference, it's the difference between these cases being handled through immigration or through the criminal justice system. And he was the one that made that call. And, you know, nobody started to call him on it except for about 48 hours later because he was starting to blame the Democrats. He was making this sound like a law. And everybody who was fronting the news would say, except for Fox, everybody who was fronting the news would say, He's blaming everybody else that this can it can only stop. It, it, the Democrats can only make it stop. When we all know it's only he, only Trump, who can make all of this stop. And he proved that by getting out his big fat Sharpie and signing another infamous order. 
I know when you when you said that the big fat sharpie, I, I was. Have you seen the sort? Have you yes, seen the size of the sharpie? I I often wonder, and I think that there's probably been two hours spent on sharpie size to make sure that it can be seen from, from afar from a camera. You know what? I've been in radio for over thirty years now. I have musicians coming in here all the time, and they say, "Well, don't you have a sharpie?" Because there's lots of situations where people are signing things. I've never seen any star, any artist use a sharpie that fast. Well, exactly. Why doesn't he just bring in a spray? He might as well. He should bring in a spray bomb. Well, and here's the thing about Trump. You know, he makes it sound like, first of all, there was a lot of calling for Ivanka's head. You know, they all knew she's sitting in the West Wing. Nobody knows what Ivanka does, but she has the highest of security clearance. There is no title for Ivanka other than she wanders the halls of the West Wing. And she was supposed to be seen as a moderating impact on her father that could be able to talk sense to him. So the New York Times, the Washington Post, Ivanka, where are you? And not only that, but if you went on her Insta feed on Father's Day, she posts a picture of her family talking about her wonderful husband, Jared Kushner, and what a great father he is. Well, if you read the feed, you would exactly see the divide in America right now, which is like, how could you do this? You are ignorant. Mm. It was vitriolic on both sides. And yet there was the other side of it. who said, well, then don't come here with your kids because this is what's going to happen. Fox News went as far as saying, what are people yelling about and screaming about? It's like summer camp in there. If it's summer camp, Laura Ingram, why don't you send your own kids? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's all inflammatory. It's all about grandstanding. And honestly, I think this all goes back to his inauguration and how people said it was the least well-attended inauguration. So ever since then, Trump and his people are, are there to make a grand show of things to show popularity, to show support. So, for example, he signs this thing with his big fat uh, Sharpie on steroids. Then there's a rally in Minnesota, of all places, uh, you know, showing great support over what Trump just did in repealing, just taking away the kids from their parents. And then he gets a, you know, bust them in. You know, busing the busing the people in is not is not new in politics to to show support. Bus in all those Republicans, bus in all those people that we know that we can create a rally, even if it's just behind him for the cameras, to show that he's still a popular guy and that he did the right thing. You know, he has these advisors. Um, what's the one? That, well, first of all, his chief of staff was the one who first floated this idea of separating kids. Mm. And then there's this other advisor. And you can't tell me when these meetings are going on, Alyssa, that someone says, you know, if you do that, we're going to have this problem because we got to separate the kids. Someone in that meeting must have said that. And then what they said to him, and I agree that that's what happened. But then they also said, and then we're going to use it as leverage to get our wall. And the wall was a big thing. Yeah. Every Trump Is this backfiring, though? I mean, is this all about the wall? Is this, yes, it is. And is it's this like if the Democrats would do this, I could come to some sort of agreement about it and yeah. I'll get my wall. Yeah. He still wants that wall. There are certain things that he really campaigned on, and the wall was one of them. And it's not happening. It's certainly not happening quick enough for him. So I think that somebody said, listen, we're going to take a lot of heat. But you know what? In maybe in under two weeks, we're going to get our wall. Well, what they didn't account for was the huge outcry and of the leaked uh, tapes and of the pictures and of what was really going on. You know, this uh, famous screenwriter Judd Apatow on his Instagram said, stop Trump's concentration camps. Yeah. So when you see that, I mean, they attack character, they attack integrity. 
And and that, you know, still means a lot to Trump. And he doesn't want to be disliked. He wants to be liked. But, so you know, probably, you, yeah, we all remember when uh, Syria uh, was accused or was using uh, chemical warfare on their own people and th- those terrible images of the kids being uh, treated after this uh, barbaric chemical attack. And all of a sudden, the, you know, uh, Donald Trump loaded up the cavalry and boom, 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 boom. Well, this is it maybe not be that dramatic, but this again or those images from Vietnam during uh, during that war. These are the sort of images that change political careers. Well, and that's what they were really worried about, especially when you had Republicans going on TV and saying, I can't stand with my party on this. This is a moral divide and I and I, and I absolutely can't stand with it. And Which is why that, Trump needs Democratic support, because he can't get his own people to vote for him. Well, first of all, that bill will never pass without Democratic support. No Democrat's going to vote for it first, so that's the end of that. But here's what the long view is, Scott, and the long view is the midterms coming up in November, where people are hoping for a big blue wave, meaning that Democrats will unseat Republicans and they will lose control of the houses. So the Democrats are taking, the Republicans are taking a very long view. And I think that's why this reversal of, of, the, um, of taking uh, kids away from their parents happened so quickly because there was, A, a huge divide in the, the party itself. And B, they knew that the Democrats could make hay about this, you know, until November. So I think that what they're hoping is, is that, well, you know, June is a long way from November and we can say that we changed our minds, but we're still going to roll stay hard and fast on our immigration policies, but we realized we were wrong, and, and but we still don't think we were that wrong, but we still reverse our decision. Well, this is going to be an issue unless these camps are dismantled by the time the midterm elections roll around. And you know that ain't going to happen because this problem's not going away quickly. Well, remember, too, I mean, I read an article, and I would still need to verify this, but Jeff Sessions is, you know, these camps are all owned by prisons, and, you know, prisons are a money-making venture, and I think one of the people who are involved in this whole prison system is Jeff Sessions, and I think that was exposed by the Washington Post, so there's that. Um, you know, nobody's doing, uh, you're not going to do anything without trying to line their pockets first, so there, you know, there's that. So Jeff Sessions and the Steve Miller are offering a lot of advice and trying to keep a very, very white America, which absolutely appeals to their base. That's what they want. That's honestly what they want. And their base believes that. So what the Democrats really have to do is to keep this sort of anti-family, you know, anti-morality administration. That's what they have to start beating beating the drums with, you know, start coming up to the um, November elections. And, you know, I do hear some of it, but I think there needs to be more of a consistent outcry. And, you know, the Republicans will know how well they've been doing once these are over. So, you know, any missteps leading up to those or anything that, that derails you or, you know, takes your, your eye off the ball is not something that the Republicans want to do. What does it say when he says, absolutely not, this is not going to happen on my watch. And then the next day he's standing next to his wife and his daughter and says, well, you know, I didn't like what I was seeing. So it's clear that they influenced his opinion. How does that play? Well, it's also great cover, right? So Melania comes out with her own um, statement, and then apparently Ivanka came out with a statement, of which I didn't see, but she came out. She was being absolutely excoriated in the press. And I cannot believe for one minute that that didn't bother her. And I think that she probably marched in and said, I'm being dragged through the mud because of your decisions. What are you doing? So who knows what happened? 
but he it's very politically savvy to use his wife and his daughter as cover because they're a bit like Teflon and, you know, what else is going to stick to them? But, but you know, anything that's hopefully that represents goodness and lightness in the White House, which we know there's not that's not in large abundance. So, you know, Scott, I, I have to say that I honestly believe that, you know, this presidency is like one big TV show mm. and we're the audience yep. and we're willing participants. Good point. So it's almost like a TV arc. Like, think about it. You know, here's your problem. The problem escalates. What are we going to do? Oh, okay. Well, 60 minutes is almost up. So therefore we need to have a nice little wrap up. In. Along with the laugh track and the hijinks. Well, and, and, you know, I also often wonder when there's a lot of focus put on one issue and, and what I've seen with this government, it means that something else is going on that they don't want us to see. And I always think, okay, there's a lot of focus on that. What are they trying to do to deflect our focus from something else? And, you know, this happens time and again with with, with Trump. So, you know, it's like what happened with the G7 meeting. You know, he leaves, he gets angry at Trudeau. And, I mean, I think that anger was basically based on that Trudeau made him sound like he was soft like that Trump was soft mm. and, you know, they're not going to push us around. And here he is about to go to North Korea and go toe-to-toe with Kim Jong-un. So, you know, what does that make him look like? I think that was part of his whole screed against Canada, which people absolutely laughed at um, in ma- much of the mainstream media, all of which Trump would consider fake news in the U.S. What, would, it, what, what yeah. about the prime minister's reaction to what was happening in regard to the immigration policy? He was slagged because he didn't say anything for the first couple of days. I'm guessing because of the slagging at the G7. I mean, why why put your hand in that hornet's nest when you don't have to? Then a couple of days later, along with other world leaders, uh, condemned his actions. How do you think the prime minister played this? He had to play it exactly like that. I mean, you know what happens when you come out against Trump, and it's a it's a no win. It's a no win, and because NAFTA's hanging in the balance. So if I didn't think that there were trade negotiations hanging in the balance, I think Trudeau would have come out earlier. But because other world leaders stepped up and said and denounced his actions, then therefore there was safety in numbers. So it just wasn't him. He was part of a group. So the blowback, if any, would have been not as great. But to come out solely and you know take another lashing like he did on um, you know after the G7, they were not going to submit themselves to that. So you know moral, you know morality wise, this isn't something that probably sat well with Trudeau. But you know politically wise and savvy wise, he wasn't going to come out and say anything on his own. All right, let's change gears uh, real quick here. I don't know if you've seen the uh, footage of the female FIFA uh, reporter who's in Russia uh, reporting on the games and who got kissed and groped by the fan. Did you see that? I heard about it. Clearly, the Me Too movement is not worldwide. Clearly, especially if you're a drunken soccer fan. But you know what? This has become something that has unfortunately become a bit of a norm for female reporters We've had it seen happen to Shauna Hunt when she was on City. It's, it's, it's happened in Toronto quite a bit. I should it's, say that what happened, this female reporter was doing a hit outside of uh, a stadium and some drunken fan comes up and kisses her and grabs her breast at the same time. You know, the fact that any man thinks that they, whether they're drunk or not, thinks that they, they have the opportunity. Listen, you, you, show, you, put, you put a camera on somebody. And they're going to do one of two things. They'll look and they'll walk away or they'll make an absolute fool of themselves. <laughs> so true. So, you know, it's not 15 minutes of fame. It's 15 seconds of fame. And this guy certainly got that in spades. 
But it, it also just shows that there is a huge disdain and disregard for females, females doing certain jobs and females doing a certain job in, in sport, which is still, you know, there's a lot of great sports reporters uh, out there and anchors, especially here in Canada. Um, if you look at TSN, there's many, many females who are running the desk and running and running those shows across a number of sports. But in soccer, you know, outside of this country, it's a very male-dominated sport. And I think that there are people who, men who think that, you know, it's just fun and games for a woman to be reporting on it. And certainly couldn't be serious. So, you know, there's this unwritten permission that I'll do as I please. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa Freeman PR. As always, Alyssa, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.